0: Hi, you've reached the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Please leave a message.
1: Yeah, hi Mario, it's uh, it's Professor Luke O'Neill here. How are you? Yeah, uh, here you have Jim Sheridan on on today's uh podcast. Love the podcast, by the way. Uh, listen, would you tell Jim that I've I've actually written a film script uh, treatment there, uh, if you wouldn't mind having a look at it? Uh, it concerns uh, kind of a uh, sort of a uh, sort of a humble academic uh, working away in a in a lab who sings the odd song at the weekend, you know. Anyway, to cut a long story short, he, he inadvertently becomes a kind of a rock star overnight, and everybody goes mad for him. It's kind of like a star is born, except with a kind of an immunologist flavor. Anyway, uh, thanks, let me know. Ah, Mario oh be Jesus. Tis Michael Flatley, of How are you doing? How are you keeping? G'nary on Boerlet. Me
0: film career is going from strength to strength, be gobs, with me film Blackbird streaming on whatever site it is, I can't divulge it at the moment. I hear you have Seamus Sheridan on today. Begobbs, I'm a massive fan of his film In the Name of the Father. Would you tell Seamus I'd be delighted to do a remake? I'd be playing a dancing terrorist gets blown up by his own bomb. Be Jesus! Ends up spending the rest of his life on his back, painting with his left foot, making a fortune. Tis a winner. Begobbs.
1: Message for Jim Sheridan. Uh, this is Doctor Tony Holohan, CMO. I'd be very interested in meeting uh, Jim Sheridan about an idea I have for a film I've been incubating for some time about a maverick chief cop who cleans the streets of scum every weekend, working title, Dirty Holohan. Thank you.
0: So, as you can hear, great excitement about today's guest. Arguably one of the most successful film directors ever to come out of this country. I am, of course, talking about Jim Sheridan. Jim has directed an incredible list of acclaimed films, including The Field, In America, and but probably he's most associated with his collaborations with the great Daniel Day-Lewis. I'm talking about My Left Foot, In the Name of the Father, and, of course, The Boxer. Um, And in this conversation that I have with Jim, you'll hear him talk at length about some of the scenes in the movies and behind the scenes of some of the scenes in the movies, particularly a gruesome and brilliant scene in In the Name of the Father, uh, which I remembered very vividly in my head before Jim and I talked about it, because there was something so visceral about it. And of course, the reason it appeared to be visceral to me was the making of that scene. And of course, is the scene where Daniel Day-Lewis um, is being tortured um, to give a, into giving a confession um, to the Guildford bombings, and it is absolutely fascinating. Um, Jim's uh, thoughts uh, on all of that, but a great director and a great mind as well, um, great conversationalist, incredibly thoughtful person, as you'll
2: hear. And you always have the aura of the killer around you when you've been in the public eye for so long, and it's very hard to get past it, you know to not be seen as the killer. The only time I was ever really in real, real danger, somebody tried to stab me, and just before they went to stab me, I looked in their eye and I felt the unified universe. I know that sounds nuts, but that's the way it's like with Daniel on a set. It's boom, you know, you're in a different zone. We weren't scared of Harvey, you know? it's like, it's fucking Harvey, you know? It's just a fucking guy. What are you afraid of him for, you know? And I was behind the camera going, hit him a fucking dig, put him back in the seat. Nobody was doing that. And so I walked on the set, Jerry Mac or somebody had a gun. So I took the gun and I literally walked over to Daniel with the gun to his head like that. And I put it to my own head and pulled the trigger. Uh, that's my interview with Jim it's
0: coming up very shortly. Before that, I've got a brand new comedy sketch. Exclusive to you as a loyal listener to the Mario Rosenstock podcast, which is proudly supported by Curry's PC World. And thank you very much for Curry to Curry's for their ongoing support. And just a note that if you ever find yourself in the midst of a kitchen disaster, Curry's PC World is there to help. I mean, they're not just a shop just lying around there. They actually can be of use to you. They have so much going on in their outlets. Um, and they can be of help, just like they helped a certain famous resident in Dublin's Phoenix Park recently.
3: Oh, for God's sake. This thing is useless. Michael D., what are you doing? What does it look like I'm doing, woman? What? I'm cooking. Cooking for who? What? For what? Who? For the king of Togo. The dignitaries. They're arriving this evening, the reception. But you've never even cooked so much as an egg in your life. Well, as indoor dining doesn't look as if it's going to happen for the next 50 years. I thought I'd learn. This blender is falling apart. That's not a blender. That's a coffee machine. What's this yoke? That's a food processor. You can't. It's about a hundred years old, woman. (gasps) It's it's on fire. The Rogan Josh. It's on fire. The cooker. Oh, the cooker's knackered. Sabina. Sabine, do something.
0: Hello? Sabine. Is that Curry's PC World? Yes. I see you have a range of excellent kitchen appliances on sale at the moment. Sabine. Yes. It's Orson phoenix
3: park
1: may i give my compliments to the chef
3: uh, yes i am the chef your highness oh really yes i prepared everything myself with my own hand yes.
1: the rogan josh is absolutely incredible
0: well michael d has always been good with curries haven't you michael d really
3: uh, <laughs> yes yes indeed i have
0: <laughs> Curries, pc world kitchen appliances fit for a king and michael d higgins um cooking away there and cooking up a storm. Um, Well, listen, everyone has been talking about the unfortunate scenes of hooliganism witnessed over the last uh, week, week and a half or so um, after the European um, final 2021, um, Italy versus England at Wembley, um, which turned out to be incredibly badly policed. Um, The inquest is still going on. They're hoping there's going to be a big inquiry into it. Um, It was a complete mess, the whole thing. And it got me to thinking about hooliganism. And... How incredibly, uh, how incredibly rancid the whole thing has got. So weird and gnarled that in this case, it seems that the hooligans were turning against themselves uh, at one point, that they had nobody else to turn against. So they just kind of looked inwards. A bizarre situation altogether. And it got me to thinking how and when and where that might have come about. We are the hool! We, we are, are the hool! We are
3: the hooligans! hooligans. Oi! Who do you think you are then? You what? We're hooligans, aren't we? Hooligans, aye. Ha! You're not proper hooligans. You bought tickets. Yeah. So, yeah. what's wrong with that? Proper hooligans don't buy tickets don't no more. Buy. Like us, we is proper hooligans. Proper. proper. Hooligans. How did you get in? <laughs> How did you get in? We're hooligans! Yeah. Yeah. We broke in for free! Who do you think put the leg into hooligan? Yeah. You on the other hand are a disgrace, my skin-headed friend. To hooliganism. Yeah.
0: What? I bet you're not even racist. How dare you? I am racist. Me. some of my best friends are racist. Aye. Aye. And we're broadly sympathetic to tic- Nazis, you know. Yeah, all. Goebbels.
3: <laughs> the Nazis don't make me laugh. What? What? The Nazis had a raison on Tetra. Proper hooligans don't need a raison d'etre to you hate what? other countries. Do they, lads? No. Ah. All
0: right, all right, lads. Let's find
1: some common ground here. We're both sets of amoral thugs, right? What? Common
3: ground? Ha! Hooligans don't do common ground. Let's get him, lads. Get him, get him, Oi! What?
2: what? Hold it right there.
3: Who are you? Who, Who are you?
2: Who are you lot?
3: Where are Who hooligans, are
2: Hooligans. Are You're not real, hooligans. What? what? You What? Hate other countries. That's Aye. right. Yeah. Racist. That's yeah. right. Nazis. Can be. Nazis more
0: like. You oh, what? You I take offence to that I'll language. Right yeah, side, I do. Real
2: hooligans don't just go around hating other countries. Ooh. Real hooligans hate their own country. Ooh. And nobody no. brings disgrace on their own country better than us. Now get them, lads. <laughs> Hey, lads, hey. Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor. hey!
3: I heard you iterating that nobody brings disgrace on your own country better than you. No. Well, hello, lads! Hold my beer while I incinerate your cranium! Let's go, you fucking... Oh. Oh. Yeah, your wife is in oh. me oh. at the end!
0: Brand new comedy just for you every week here on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Um, it's strange, but it's true, I think. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please follow or subscribe and leave a rating or even better, a review. Write it down. What do you think of the show? Any suggestions? Well, actually, if you want any suggestions, you can um, email me personally, Rosenstock at gmail.com. I read them all um, and every so often I get back to them all. Um, I just do a big splurge and I talk to them. So thank you very much for sending me your emails. I read them all. So if you have any suggestions, any guests you'd like to hear, any sketches you're enjoying, any stuff you'd like me to continue, more of, less of, any stuff you'd like me to do, tell me. uh, And I'll take it on board. But in the meantime, give me a rating um, and give us a review. And thanks to everyone who has reviewed over the last few days. And now it's time for The Star to come on to the set. For the next while, I'll be in conversation with Jim Sheridan, one of the greatest movie directors ever to come out of Ireland. So, continue to continue. Get your seat, get your popcorn, and giant soft drink ready. Sit back and enjoy the show. Jim, we met once um, sixteen years ago. You came to the opening of a play I was performing in called I Kino, which was directed by your oh, brother. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, uh,
0: Pedro. And I played, and I played Kino in the film. Yeah, in the in the in
2: you the. You were play. really good. Oh, it take, was a great, it was a great show. Um, I suppose it, it only had a limited um Shelt-like. life yeah. at that time because I suppose it was in Ireland he was really famous. Mm. Um, I thought it should have been called Achilles because he reminded me of Achilles more than Claudius. You know. Like the raging uh, killer in the middle of the Trojan Wars, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, with you know, yeah. He's an amazing character, right, Keen? Isn't he? He is. Yeah. Are you? You're, you seem to be. Um, I've read a little bit about it. you you
0: seem to be quite fascinated with him yourself. You're quite taken with him yourself.
2: Yeah, he's just got that. He reminds me of Daniel Day a lot. You know, Daniel Day Lewis, and that they're both leaders that the rest of the crew and team just go okay he's on the team say nothing (laughs) just do what you're told and don't get him staring at you
0: (laughs) yeah your brother was great fun to work with and great fun to be directed by Um, and since we you know parted on that um, show I've had him on my radio show uh, many times over the years and uh, he's a great spieler I'll tell
2: you that now Um, he's um, a very good uh, talker I think the two of us are good uh, talkers um, storytellers, you know Yeah, I want to
0: talk to you a little bit about Daniel Day-Lewis later, but um, first of all I'm going to talk to you about Murder um, at the Cottage um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued actually, Jim First of all, what brought you to this? What
2: brought you to do this? Why did you do this? Why now and why this? Mario, because we always say And Peter will say that we come from Sheriff Street, but we actually came from Seville Place, which is kind of You know, if I hold my fingers up like that That's the church, this is Seville Place That's Sheriff Street so they're joined at the hip, but mutually exclusive. And we were kind of, I wouldn't say middle class, but our parents ran a lodging house. And I knew many kids that were sent away to letter frack and other places. And And so the law in the form of a judge never really seemed fair to me. And then the law in the... Terms of a police car was what kids on the street thought was the law because it was the cops that nabbed you to take you to court. So, both of them from a very early age, I was like NWA or Compton, you know, sheriff or I was sheriff, or, you know, like, do you know, I like forget it, you know, I don't, this, this I don't trust. The system, I basically had a little bit of preordained, uh, whatever it's called, you know. I was I was um, predisposed against it, you know? Yeah. And so my feeling of going into the high court or any court in Ireland is like walking into a field of treacle and you get one foot stuck in it and you try to take it out and then you have to balance to get the other foot in it to take the first foot out. Now you've got two feet in it and you're trying to unglue yourself mm. and you're then in a system where no matter how much you might be paid in what you do, your time is of no value. The only time that counts is the legal profession. And I find that clinically insane and very impossible to deal with. Hmm. So why would you go to court? You wouldn't. You Hmm. you just you would stay out of it because they're the only people that get paid, you know? Yeah. So I watched from afar Bailey's Travails and then one day I happened to be up in the environs of the high court. And I just want to tell you what it's like to put in a plenary summons. If an ordinary person was to put in a plenary summons because they couldn't afford to pay five or 10,000 to a senior counsel Mm. on any issue, they go in there and they have to get it stamped. And let's say, I don't know how much it is. Somebody else could tell me, but it's, it's not, inexpensive it's a couple of hundred maybe and you kind of have to go through a lot of looks you know people looking at you what are you doing here like this is the lister's job and then you have to get it stamped so you go to another part of the courts and the guy goes so how do you want to pay and you go credit card he goes we don't take credit cards check we don't take checks what do you take cash so you and the crooks are the only guys who take cash? Well, no, it's not my, you know. So I don't have that amount of cash. Where do I get it? Well, there's no ATM in the courts. Oh, where's there an ATM? In the restaurant, in the ca- cafeteria, the canteen for in the law society. Okay, so you have to go over and put your card in, get the cash out, go back and pay him, And I can go into him. like, why did you ask me? How I wanted to pay If I can only pay in cash I have to ask that (laughs) So that's the legal system So like Everybody's telling the truth Actors are lying In order to find a bigger truth The legal people are Telling a version of the truth In order to hide a bigger lie You can only pay in cash And I find it It's just because I was trained the other way You know to deal with people who in effect, they're lying, and I have to see if they're lying good enough that people won't catch them out. That's my job, yeah? So I went to these other people who always appear to be lying to me, but I can never catch them out. And that's the legal profession to me. Yeah. So I find it like just a different arena. I've got used to it a bit. So in that arena, you have a situation where Ian Bailey was going through it's high court action, and it was 62 days. And on the 62nd day, the state raised the defense of the statute of limitations. And you're going, now did, did that just happen? Did, did somebody just spend five to eight million of the taxpayers' money and give the bill to Ian Bailey? Like, in what world is that saying? And you, so, you, you know, you're dealing with a world where I just can't even get my head around how insane it is. And, um, you know, I just was like, I can understand this man caught in this Kafkaesque nightmare with nobody raising any questions about, could it possibly be true that he might not perhaps have done it? You know, I'm like, wow. So I met him and I just talked to him and, Jules Thomas, and you always have the aura of the killer around you when you've been in the public eye for so long. And it's very hard to get past it, you know? It's very hard to to not be seen as the killer. Mm. So I decided I would kind of start talking to him and start investigating it just to see if the story would carry me along, if you know what I mean? Like I, I just wanted to do a documentary and then I was willing, then I decided, you know what, I'm going all the way with this. This doesn't stop. You know, this is, this is my experience of the legal system put in a focus where, you know, it, it doesn't hurt me anymore. It's not me. It might be somebody else I'm trying to help the French family or, justice for Sophie or whatever. And it's not me, you know. And so I found a way of dealing with what I would call post-traumatic stress from dealing with the legal profession. Like, we've had all these societies, whether they be the police or the priests or the Christian brothers or the scouts or male cults. Now, I wouldn't say the The police are a cult exactly, but you know, male societies that regulate themselves. And I'm going, like, yeah, guess what? I'd like Jim Sheridan's a self regulator. I check myself every morning, and I'm telling you, I do right every day, and I get up with a good, clear conscience. Is that good enough for you? Like, that's how mad it is. So, so Jim, part of what drew you to
0: this is the Kafkaesque kind of element to it, the nightmare. But also, is am I right in saying, because I read that part of it was the impact that the grief had on the Duplantier family from, you know, from somebody yeah. very young and special to them being taken from them. And that kind of had resonate, reson, yeah. resonances with you.
2: Yeah. And, you know, Peter is the same. And my sister, and my brother, Johnny and Paul and Gerard, And they were all traumatized by the death of Frankie. Probably not Paul because he was too young. Yeah. Frankie was your 11-year-old brother. Yeah. Yeah. And people get fed up. They go like, Jim, other people had kids that died. And I'm like, okay. But, you know, when it happens to you, it just happens to be something that focuses your life. And the death of Frankie, you know, the person who's taken too soon was Sophie. And it kind of, that, that kind of emotionally hit me. So normally, like documentaries are stories about or should be stories with objectivity and distance and and concern and consideration for the truth. And that is true, I think, of what I made. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, you have to have an emotion that drives you through the wall, that keeps you going. So on the one hand, there was Frankie. And then on the other, there's this... Amazing story, Mario, that a hundred years ago, a month ago and a hundred years, on the 8th of May, my grandmother died and I went to her grave on the 8th of May, a hundred years later, and there was flowers there. I still don't know who put them there. And the reason that date was so uh, vital to me was that was the day my mother was born. So my mother's mother died giving birth to her. So my mother, Anna, the daughter of Mary, uh, blamed herself, if you know what I mean, for her mother's death, I think. And and not until she was about 25, you know, when she got pregnant and I was the first kid, did she in some way exercise this deep-seated guilt and I said in the dock, I had to cut it because it seemed too personal. I said that, you know, I don't think I kicked out as a child that much. I've got short legs. Yeah. <laughs> I asked my mother and she said, no. And then, then I said, but I do know that I rubbed their stomach and or 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 whatever it is you're in. And I, th- I said, although that may sound crazy to people, that's actually what every child does and you create what I would call digital ID on the tops of your fingers. So since the start of time, man has made his ID on his fingers by his emotions or, or whatever it is before you're born, I'd suspect emotions. I'd suspect some knowledge of I'm somewhere and who am I and what am I and where am I going? And so, when you rub your fingers, they found that those prints are changed by different factors. One of the biggest factors by a mile is famine. Famine fingerprints are very different to any other fingerprints. And I think deep in the Irish soul are famine fingerprints, frenetic activity before birth, you know, real distress. And somehow in West Cork, you know, people say they, I think the Netflix documentary says there are three famine houses. Well, if that's so, Sophie was like a victim of the famine left out overnight. And it kind of raised a primal toxic memory. And I think that drove a lot of the case, you know, and not in an, you know, not in a way that anybody's going, oh, like the famine, but, but it's suddenly, oh, it's the Englishman that's responsible, you know? Oh, yeah. You know, so, so it, they're kind of dealing with the confluence of two events and one explaining the other. And it seems mm. to be fundamentally important for, for us as a people to not always be blaming the Englishman. Now maybe that's crazy but I think that you know you have to remember but you have to forgive and you have to forget and you know the French family obviously can't forget I don't think they want to forgive they shouldn't forgive and they're caught in grief like my mom and dad were yeah but that's not a that's not a sound state of mind you know it's like yeah. you're making decisions. and, and, And I think people can manipulate that grief, you know? So I'm not saying, and I can never say that Ian Bailey is innocent. And the reason for that is he's been found guilty in a trial in Paris. But not only are there no fingerprints there, a lot of the evidence against him is makeup, made up would be like a a, a generous description of it Uh, from the first phone call to the last, you know, everything is like, I'll tell you what happens in court or in statements. So I have a lawyer and he goes to court and sometimes, you know, he goes without me there or whatever. And the stenographer takes his name and she takes it wrong because She's not watching his lips because she's a stenographer. So she's not visually engaged with the scene. She's orally engaged. And that's what the courts are. The courts are a legal system based on the word, based on the pulpit, based essentially on Protestantism coming out of the Gutenberg press. And it's not even 19th century. It's not even 17th. It's somewhere 16th century. And you have an iPhone. And you could record anybody's statement and then they cannot deny they made it. But in the police station, the person says that the cops has to pick it up correct. He has to type it. He has to read it back, which he may couldn't make a mistake or worse. I'm not saying they did, but you know that can happen. And then the person signs it probably without reading it. And so like, there's about eight elements that can go wrong. So like Napoleon's biggest uh, success, he said, was the Napoleonic Code, the legal system that he yeah. re- out with out of the French Revolution. Mm. In many ways, it's better than the common law. Mm. And so the French are mystified as to why once Bailey was arrested, he wasn't charged, because it goes the other way around in France. You're essentially the magistrate checks if you should be arrested, if there's enough evidence, and then you're allowed to be arrested. In Ireland, it's reversed. You're arrested, and the arrest itself is a method of attack. You know, it's a method of going after the suspect. It's not like that in France. And in France, once you're arrested, your name will not be released. So you've got many things that, in France are strengths that become weaknesses in Ireland and vice versa Mm. now I see today like for instance that the Alan Spiller a really decent man and uh, somebody I like who's the family lawyer said you know Bailey should come to to uh, France if he thinks it was a hitman and give the evidence and it's like like Alan you know I think probably Ian Bailey's wrong to say it was a hitman. He has no evidence probably on that. I think it's just like something that he says probably emotionally. And But when the Irish police went to France, they were not allowed to interview any French citizen. So are you saying to me that, let's say my wife Fran goes to France and anything happens and... They come to me, the cops from France and the Irish police. They'd say, you can't talk to Jim. It's like what, like, and then I say somebody in France did it, and I'm going to try him in Ireland. Mm. Like, w- what planet are we on? This is, yeah. this is a Wonderland, you know. Yeah, did you did it ever pass through your mind to
0: to dramatize this? Yeah. What what happened to that thought?
2: Well, you know. I still have it, Mm. you know, but I wouldn't approach it the way you would approach the documentary, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Are you still driven by it, this idea? Because that's
0: what it's all about, really, in committing stuff to film. I know from what you've already said, you need to own it. It needs to be in your soul. It needs to be eating away at you for for you to do it.
2: Yeah, Yeah, it does, yeah. And you need to have something to go through the wall for. Mm. Like, in the name of the father... I was like, okay, I've got Giuseppe, the non-violent father. He's the hero. No matter what anybody says to me, I have a good defense. In this, there's a victim who can never be brought alive. And so you can't, you can make Sophie a hero, but you can't actualize it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, And so it's very hard to, emotionally invest people in it, you know? So, so you're all the time dealing with people's heads and I'm used to dealing with emotions and, and so I had to try and find the emotional resonance for myself in it, if you know what I mean. I know. Yeah. And, and that was going from the legal system, true to a sense of justice, true to yeah. there has to be something bigger than, you know, we're going to raise the statute of limitations, you know. It's yeah, like, yeah. I just, I never understand that. I still don't understand that people tell yeah. me, you know, oh, we had to air the case. Well, could you air it on your own expense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come you know?
0: here. Um, come here. Uh, success, Jim, came to you a little older uh, in your life. And, you know, I'm wondering... For example, with my left foot, were you surprised by the the success of my left foot? Or did your natural self-confident demeanor go, yeah, I knew that
2: was going to happen to me. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I think what it was like was. You know, I made the movie and when we did the scene in Locke's restaurant with Daniel, I knew there was something special there. I'd never seen anything acted like that you know I just knew it it was just something and then I went on to the field and then you know it's coming out I never expected you know when I'm sitting in a Chinese restaurant with Joan Berg and somebody'd walk in and say you got five nominations I just didn't expect that and I had been tempered by the fact that we couldn't get into Cannes and we couldn't get in as first time director or whatever you know and so the initial reaction wasn't great. And then it went to America and got a great review by Pauline Cale and that put it on the map. So, yeah, sometimes, you know, back then there were reviewers and tastemakers that could have an impact that doesn't exist anymore. You know, mm.
0: Pauline Cale, especially Yeah, Frank Rich, I think, was the, uh, yeah. in the in the theater in Broadway. He could make and start and finish a play in one night.
2: Yeah, yeah, great power he had, you know.
0: Yeah, and but but Jim, back to those two films. Let's say My Left Foot and um, The Field. I'm thinking in those two films, uh, you worked with Day Lewis and Harris. And Day Lewis, would there have been any big differences in the way they worked? I mean, two huge, towering male leads. Would there have been any differences in the way they they
2: worked on set? Um- Yeah, yeah. like Daniel is ferociously committed and wouldn't be capable of any moves, if you know what I mean. Like he wouldn't. And Richard had come out with a Hollywood tradition of. Daniel came out of the theater tradition, really, and Richard as well. But once he got into the movies, his mate, Peter O'Toole, told him, don't act in the wide shots, you know, when they go close, that's when you act because he will use the wide shot. And they had that attitude to the studio system, you know, to protect themselves. So they were already in a in a war of the system. And so they're kind of looking past the camera or past you to the audience if you know what i mean to, mm-hmm. the, to the and and with daniel it was just me and daniel in the room you know um even though other actors might be there uh, it was like a it was a similar experience to the only time i was ever really in real real danger somebody tried to stab me and just before they went to stab me i looked in their eye and i felt the unified universe i know that sounds nuts but that's the way it's like with Daniel on a set it's boom you know you're in a different zone you're in a in a something that feels profoundly spiritually true and richard is like that when he's on stage you know he has this towering fucking presence and fearlessness and rebel instinct and anything could happen anything And he was always in the moment and he was like that on film. But he said to me, I've only got four four hours in film and in stage I've got five. And I don't know whether that's true, but, you know, with Richard, I had to force him to deal with me and not with his audience, if you know what I mean. Mm. So a lot of my time was spent fucking him up, you know.
0: Mm. Well, one of the things I think about, just as watching Day Lewis and everything, I mean, I would have a sort of a, a jaundiced opinion to this, Jim, uh, because my opinion, right, would be that J- Day Lewis is just a superb actor. Okay, so I think he is a superb actor. Probably has all sorts of gifts. He looks amazing. He's highly intelligent. He's deeply reflective. He's very self-aware and not self-aware. He's spiritual. He's got a presence. He has charisma. My mm. argument has always been. If somebody held a gun to his head and said, you cannot engage the method acting method to
2: do this film, Mm -hmm. my argument
0: was always he would have been just as good anyway.
2: You know, it's funny, the gun to the head statement, because when we were doing In the Name of the Father and he has to sign the confession, you know. Yes. So I said to him, Daniel, this is the scene I can't write. He was like, what do you mean? I said, I don't fucking know how to write it like you know like yeah. no matter what we're gonna do at the moment that which Jerry signs the confession there's gonna be a portion of the audience thinking he did it you know thinking he wouldn't do that unless I said and I don't know how to get around that and he just said keep me awake for two nights yes yeah. like, <laughs> and so I kept him away for two or three nights. Pat Henry threw water on him every half hour. So he's a gym instructor, the the, the gym yeah. guy. Hmm. And so Daniel came on that set like a person who hasn't slept for three nights or whatever it was, two or three. And so it was highly emotional. And when it got to where Jerry MacSorley said to him, I'm going to kill Giuseppe, he whispers in his ear, you know, the script said, Daniel breaks down crying and signs the confession. Instead, Daniel attacked everybody. And everybody was so. Um, n- not expecting that. That they kind of all stood back, the actors. And I was behind the camera going, hit him a fucking dig. Just fucking hit him a dig. Put him put him back in the sea, you know. And so. Nobody was doing that. And so I walked on the set and I just Jerry Mac or somebody had a gun. So I took the gun and I literally walked over to Daniel with the gun to his head like that. And then I laughed like it's not a real gun. And I put it to my own head and pulled the trigger. Yeah, And that's yeah. in the movie. Yeah. So I did put a gun to his head, but we both knew it wasn't real. But we both knew that to get someplace beyond words. Like yes. when you're two. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. It's when you're the two scene, years.
0: The, Yeah. The scene is mind blowing. Sorry, because you're bringing the scene back to my head. It's absolutely mind blowing. And I was going to mention Jared McSorley actually in the yeah. scene, because yeah. it's him in a way that makes the scene because yeah. without Jared McSorley, the, the almost the breakdown, the absolute yeah. dissolution of day Lewis's character can't be melted down without
2: this monster getting into his head. Well, you know, in a funny way, Jerry's not a monster. Jerry's just like a pro- northern police who who knows the way it works, and he's yeah. willing to do his duty on behalf of the crown to bring in the to bring in the what he thinks is the killer. He later goes back to Belfast, disgusted at the whole crown. So I was trying to show one good. Unionist policeman, you know. In fact, <laughs> I had no uh, instinct to show any bad policeman in that movie. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, um, but, the, but, but when you're two or, you know, they call it the terrible twos and you might get a hatchet and want to kill somebody or a hammer. And those emotions that you feel then they're very hard to access as an adult. Yes.
0: So what he did was so what he did was he broke down his he broke down his his, uh his maturity, his adultness. Yeah. And got through to this basically a kinetic, emotional, two-year-old side that just
2: wanted to lash out. Yeah. And and and, and take and and protect himself. Yeah. And protect himself by signing away his life. Because his mind is gone. And and that you know,
0: It's beautiful, Jim. It is beautiful. It's just, Mm. it's beautiful. I'm wondering, I'm wondering, when you think of doing something like that again, let's say somebody says, to, let's say something gets into your heart, a film project gets into your heart, and you say, shit, I have to do this now. Do you then in your mind go, oh my God, doing this will mean I have to go through processes, which will end up in me being in a cell with maybe someone like Day-Lewis, pouring my heart and soul into... What might happen, not being able to write something, telling somebody I won't be able to write it, and is that something you'd be prepared to go through again, or in some way again
2: you know i'd love to, you know I'd love to do another movie with Daniel, you know that'd be like the, there's something happens with some chemical thing that people have their strengths and weaknesses, you know, and yeah, I know my weaknesses more than my strengths, and and me and Daniel just were like. You know, it was a chemical combustion. Hard to explain. Uh, No, just hard to verbalize because it's not really verbal. But if I was to, you know, I've been thinking about a movie that he could be in, you know, and it's always can I write a part that would get him so invested that he'd want to do it, you know? Yeah. Um, and How would yeah. you convince him? I'd, I would ask him, he would say yes or no. I wouldn't have to convince him. Mm. Uh, it, it, it never, you know, I had to convince him on my left foot. And the thing about Daniel is that Daniel is not like 90% of actors. And Most actors will commit. Oh, yeah, I'll do it, you know. Yeah, I'd love to do it, yeah. Great. And then when it gets real, they might pull out, you know. Daniel would never be on that trajectory. He would, that's not, he wouldn't even deign to go into the space of saying, yeah, I'd like to do it without being 100% committed, 99%, 100%, because he never wants to back out, you know. (laughs) He doesn't want to give his word and back out because, Because that's the foundation. That's the foundation. I give my word, I'm not backing out. That's the foundation. Mm. You know, it's, it's, that's why he did The Crucible. They can't take the name, you know. Mm. It's just a thing that's from his dad, I think, you know. Mm. This podcast is proudly supported by our friends in
0: Curry's PC World. Back to the chat. Jim, the 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 film, as I said, the film you started with was was my left foot. And I mean, I'm sure you'll agree with me when you say when I say on any given year, there are a number of amazing movies made Mm. by filmmakers who don't even make films in English. So they're making them in Polish. They're making them in Chinese. They're making them in Korean. And none of these films ever get noticed by a vast international audience. Yet many of those films may have been the best film made in the world that year or five of the best films made in the world that year. In that year, 1989 or whatever, um, my left foot got noticed. And it got noticed because, you know, it was it was a lovely story. It was a true story. It was a it was it was a performance by uh, an actor on the way up who had been noticed and a director um, on the way up who, you know, and uh, was being noticed as well and, and, and a writer. But one of the things, surely, that made the movie, and this is kind of interesting to look back at it at this stage, is the fact that it was championed by a certain gentleman called Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. And had it not been championed by Harvey Weinstein, would it be correct to say, well, it may not have been marketed and advertised and celebrated so well. And now I wonder... How you feel about that person as you look back through the last 30 years and the way time has cycled and the arc, the arc of time has gone through and now Harvey Weinstein is in jail on a Zimmer frame.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure he's on the Zimmer frame in jail. He was definitely on the Zimmer frame going to court. Um, he probably is, though. I don't know. But... Do you think about that? That, that whole... Well, you know... That- that whole arc. I said the thing about Harvey was Har- Har- you could walk into a cinema and you, you show your film to a thousand people and they all come out and they love it or hate it or whatever and some love it in the extreme the only person I ever met who went into a cinema watched a movie and walked out and it was his movie so he loved your movie to the point of possession. Mm. It's a bit like, you have no choice. I'm going to possess this movie. It's mine. And mm. no matter what it takes, I'm going to get it. That's what you felt with Harvey. It was a, it, so it was jewel, you know, it was like, it was love to the point of insanity, you know, and ownership. And so it was always odd, you know, and, but very powerful, And he was probably the one person in that era who could watch a movie and feel it in his gut, you know? Like, you look at the movies he did, for God's sake, you know? And he was a little bit of a monster, obviously, but at what he did, he was totally brilliant, you know? Mm. Me and Daniel, because we were Europeans, I think, and because we were outside the American system, we weren't scared of Harvey, you know, it was like Harvey, for God's sake, you know, but it's amazing to watch that, how, how much fear he instilled in people, you know, I never really understood it. You know, I was like, it's fucking Harvey, you know, it's just a fucking guy. What are you afraid of him for? You know? Yeah. And, and that was hard to understand for me, you know, because I, I, um, like I said to you, you know, if, if if death enters the room, I'm like, okay. Now we're all in this fucking space, so you better behave, you know. It's like so I'd say anything and Harvey I wanted, you know. I'd 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 insult them and abuse him if necessary. Um and you know, I never got to work with him after into the West, and I was the writer on that, and I didn't have much uh participation in it. But I was always a little bit, um, I don't know what the word is. Well, the actual truth is I got a better offer from Universal. And so I went with Universal and Harvey was mad at me, but he was mad at everybody. And then he he, he met Tarantino and Tarantino became his, his guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they were a the better suit. I would say than me and Harvey, you know, I hmm. was, um, I wasn't that, like my movies are not very, they're more, I would say they're a little bit more theatrical, a little bit more emotional, maybe not quite as visual, but in our visual in a different way, I wouldn't compete with, you know, Tarantino or Scarsese, you know, I, I you know, they come out of it they come out of an American tradition that's completely visual and moving pictures since they were born. Like I saw moving pictures when I was 11 or 12, you know, before that in the cinema, obviously, but not much on the BBC coming to Ireland. So it was only me and Neil Jordan were the first kind of visualists, which is still where I'm at and why I find the legal system so oppressive and Oral and schizophrenic and 16th century and not fit for purpose. Uh, anyway. Mm. Uh, the,
0: the, the films nowadays, uh, uh, Jim, I was going to give you a quote from somebody. There's a comedian in America I love. I don't know if you know him or not called Bill Maher. He's um, a big U.S. television comedian. He's kind of a serious and funny as well. And um, he's very political. And he used to have a show in America called uh, Politically Incorrect. And uh, his show at the moment is called Real Time. And he constantly rails about the standard of movies at the moment, um, in the sense that we're living in an era like a pandemic, COVID, COVID. Um, it's a depressing time for many. Uh, and during those times, you would hope that there's kind of people providing some escapism, maybe some entertainment. And what he often points out is that the films were being served up now are anything but entertaining. In other words, they're the opposite of entertainment. So, for example, the last one of the last movies I watched was Nomadland um, yeah. with Frances McDormand. Now, I'd have to say Nomadland, good movie, great lead actress, um, worthy Um, serious, very few laughs, um, unspectacular in any way, nice, but more than anything, I suppose, woke. And there's a lot of, seems to be, nod of the head or tip of the hats towards subject matters which could be described as woke. And Mark goes on to say, if these films are so woke, well, then why am I falling asleep? And... uh, (laughs) Yeah. So this is what he was what he was saying. And, you know, like, for example, another Oscar nominee this year, The Sound of Metal, um, which deals with the subject of deafness or other films which deal with the subject of corrupt white policemen or other subjects which deal with, you know, the the oppressive, the oppression of the black man. And you're kind of going, yes, I see all these boxes being ticked, but where's the escapism and where's the entertainment? I wonder, did you have any views on that?
2: Oh, I have so many views on what's made. Um, You know, you've got to understand that basically I'd say right now, 90% of all cinema comes out of America has to relate to America, has to be in the English language, like you said. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's, Yeah, ticking boxes for small movies, you know, Um, for low-budget movies, they can tick boxes. They know they have a a niche of the audience and it'll pay back. But it's all about the distribution, you know. Like somebody like Netflix might make a thousand movies and I've never seen any of them. The Irishman and Roma I saw, that's it. And I kind of don't want to see any of them. And I can't explain that to you i mean they're free but isn't that because that cinema is
0: a is a uniquely different experience to a streaming service that walking into another space where there's another smell where there's another aura where the lights are off where there are strangers sitting close to you and beside you and where you are watching this 36 foot high screen project faces which are bigger than four of your bodies put together is something unique in itself
2: yeah, but you know, Mario, that what's happened is that when you went from twenty-four frames a second, you went from a visual trompe lie, you know, you from a a visual technical thing that was fairly primitive, discovered in the la two centuries ago that mm. you know you string images together and you can fool the audience, it's real. But there was in each movie, when you went to the cinema in that experience, there was 15 minutes of darkness in the flickering because mm. the space between each frame mm. is about, I'd say, a tenth of the, the whole image. So a tenth of two hours is 20 minutes. So you actually had 20 minutes of darkness and reflective thought. Yeah. Now, when you take that out and you digitize it and pixelate it, everything comes on the screen on the, f- everything goes to there. Mm. So it's the surface that's important. So you're, you're dealing with the surface and what you know is the surface can be manipulated. So you don't actually have to believe anything you're seeing now. It has a reverse effect of, Oh yeah, they can make that jump from there up on the clouds. So it stops being the old cinema that you knew and becomes a new cartoon cinema of, you know, adjusted images. And that belief, that lack of belief in what you're watching is very fucking profound. And you kind of check out, you're going, I don't believe this. Mm. And so when you lose a belief system, that's the disintegration of a culture. That's like the fucking statues on East Island. So cinema is now in a place where, it leads to trump it leads to nothing's true whatever i say is true fuck you all and oh well, that's it jim sorry that's nick that is a brilliant a brilliant and extraordinary analogy so you're equating
0: we are equating the i don't believe it in cinema i'm checking out with the disinformation culture of the world
2: as well brilliant absolutely because i think it's just what i was going to go into was belief and that's kind of what i lost when my brother died you know a belief in whatever it is, God, the Catholic church, whatever. So, you know, I replaced it with drama, theater and different things. So for me, a a documentary is a belief system and a fiction is a belief system, but they are different belief systems in a documentary. When you step into recreation, you're, you're in dangerous territory. And I wanted to cross those things and make the documentary about that, but I couldn't do it because of COVID. And so I might do that in another version where I would take the people playing, like the actors playing the people and get them to investigate the crime. Mm. Um, because it always seemed to me much more profound than hearing somebody tell you something, mm. you know? It's like you're seeing it. and But the belief system of, like, Coleridge, who probably... I don't think he was just like an essayist like Thomas De Quincey, but he was certainly a great, great theoretician. And, you know, it's funny that the two guys who, who, you know, Coleridge owed Quincy money for opium and he was never happy, didn't pay it. So when they were clear, they were clear. You know what I mean? So And Coleridge said about when he saw theater in, in, you know, drawing room theater, which had replaced the Globe, Shakespeare's round theater with no sets. And now you've got a set that you have to believe people are up on the stage in front of you in a living room. And he said the proscenium march induces a willing suspension of disbelief. So what he meant was that you have to, suppress your need to laugh at this insanity and invest your belief in what you're watching. And unless what you're watching coming off the screen coincides with your belief system, you won't watch it. You'll dismiss it. You'll you'll, No, I don't want it. I don't believe it. That's the biggest criticism of any movie or any work of art. I, I don't get it. I don't believe it. And nobody ever talks about that in cinema because you talk about narrative and fucking mythology and the hero's journey and whatever. But it's the belief system underpinning the movies that's most important. And where that gets furthest expression, I think, is in individualism. Clint Eastwood, Make My Day. That's the staple of American cinema. Not Scorsese, not Italian families, not Irish families, not any families. Cinema is not really that interested as much as it is in the individualism as it is in family. So, I mean, I think the proof of this was that the red states in America have never watched any Europe. No European movies have been distributed there for 120 years. One exception, which was the Royal Family movie. Uh, so, So there's a belief system happening that's been sent to you. And now that with the unbelievable power of the streamers, you're getting the American belief system and the American dilemmas every day. Like you say, you know, woke and black and black representation and da 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 And my kind of thing is like, it's only if you're an American that you're getting any representation. If you're outside America, you're invisible. So it's kind of a, an unbalanced world. And all the dollars are going to America, Amazon, Netflix, Apple, and it used to be the studios they went to, but now they're just going directly to all these huge behemoths of companies. Mm. Um, and and the fact of it's in your living room is very different, you know, because you know, imagine if you were in a cinema and everybody had a remote control, mm. <laughs> it's like. You couldn't watch the movie. Mm -hmm. So Mario, for... I used to... Vim Vendors was a lovely man who I knew well, and he set up the European Film Academy. And I used to say to him, Vim, you know, the Europeans, they should just not subtitle all the movies because you can't see subtitles on television and you can't see them on your computer and you definitely can't see them on the phone. So why don't you just dub all the European movies, get a central location... And I am saying that's for 20, 30 years. Netflix came along and did it within two mm. years because, because this is not a business of art. It's a business of communication. And if it turns into art, you'll know when you're dead. So I wouldn't try too hard. <laughs> I would try to just communicate. And that's what the job is to communicate. It's like primitive. You're trying to communicate an emotion and, and, and all the rest, the art and all the fellas been jumping around the place, Avatar and all that. It's like you can only take so much of it. I can't. I don't watch any of them. Do you? I I have no time to, to be
0: honest with you for the Deus Ex Machinas of the uh, Marvel yeah. World uh, 20 Dex Ex Machinas uh, chomping down the yeah. hill. No, not really. Jim, listen, um, yeah. not only thank you very much for your time, And thank you for sharing your thoughts and your soul searching. I want to thank you for a treatise in modern day uh, thought and uh, Beckettian um, Beckettian stripping down of the language and for for Mm. some great film treatise as well. It's easily known you went to film school in in New York. Um, (laughs) Jim Sheridan, I want to thank you very much for uh, giving me your time and best of luck with this documentary.
2: All right. Thank you, Mario. God God
0: bless you. And it was an absolute pleasure talking to the great Jim Sheridan. Um, as I said, I'd, I'd worked with his brother before, Peter Sheridan, on uh, on iKeno. Uh, but a great pleasure to meet P- uh, Jim and great just to listen to him and soak it all up. Uh, that's it from the Mario Rosenstock podcast for this week. We will be back next week and every week, of course. Um, we don't take a break on this show yet. Um, we're still gunning to go. Um, but I thought I'd take the opportunity actually to um, promo, if you like, or, or forward sell you. Um, other episodes that that have appeared on the Mario Rosenstock podcast that you may or may not have listened to this week i 'm going to suggest you listen to uh, an episode we did with Connor Moore the impressionist and Connor did a fantastic uh, stint with me on the Mario Rosenstock podcast and the reason I mentioned Connor is he is absolutely amazing at golf impressions all the golfers he does and I thought i 'd mention him because we are in a very very Um, iconic golfing week at the moment what with the British Open or the Open to give its correct name uh, being on this week in Royal St. George's and Connor was absolutely hilarious about all the golfers great golf stories personally meeting Tiger Woods shooting a video with Tiger Woods and and, an ad we talk about Rory we talk about everything and he does some wonderful impressions so the Connor Moore episode just flick back and flick on to the Connor Moore episode and um, you'll find it right there thanks of course to Curry's PC World for their ongoing support thanks to you for your ongoing support listening in walking uh, going around whatever you're doing hoovering my wife listens to it while she hoovers Uh, and uh, thanks a million get in touch see you same time same place next week bye-bye